So we can get that up on the screen. Brothers and sisters. It's International Women's Day. So brothers and sisters. So brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. So before I carry on, don't fall asleep in the sermon. So there we go. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you were doing. Let's pray for Martin as he comes to speak. Father God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the, the, the sermon, for, for the words that you put on Martin's heart. Lord, just speak to us again. Speak to us afresh. Give us hope, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so Louis is going to be busy this morning because I've got quite a few uh, scriptures. Um, Christian hope, waiting with confidence. Um, over the um, nearly 18 years I've, I've been in ministry now, um, I've done quite a few funerals um, over the years. And one of the things that um, strikes me is some of the language that's used around uh, funerals. And uh, people, people say things, um, all sorts of things, really, such as, uh, you know, I bet he's still playing cards up there, or he's still on the golf course, or, you know, I bet he's giving trouble up to him upstairs now, just as he did to everyone else down here. You know, all sorts of strange things people say. I've even heard people saying, well, he's, he or she is that star over there looking down. You know, there's all sorts of language, isn't there, around, uh, around death and uh, funerals. Now, I'm not mocking and uh, I don't belittle anybody because grief is a real thing and it's hard to face. And so I don't want to, I'm not here to belittle anybody, but I am here to fill you with hope this morning. 
because the Christian uh, gospel is not a kind of folklore um, teaching about death, as if kind of some vague mystical um, hope about some sort of future living. It is rooted in the truths of Scripture, and that's what I'm here to share with you this morning. I think this is probably the most excited I've ever got preparing a sermon, because this is absolute dynamite. It really is. It, it's, it's, so, it's so filled with hope that I almost, when I was typing, I almost fell off my chair. It was, it's that good. So I'm hoping that my conveying of hope and good news um, kind of does the passage justice this morning. But I'm here to hopefully fill you with hope in a, I don't know if you noticed, but a pretty hopeless world, isn't it, out there? A pretty dark world where people are, are kind of desperate for hope, and yet they're not finding it. They're not finding it. And I, and I just want to say, we have hope to share as Christians that no one else has. And, it, and we can be beacons of hope in these days of coronavirus, can't we? You know? It's not all gloom and doom and destruction and death, is it? Jesus is alive. He's reigning. He's coming again. And um, we have hope. So uh, here we go. If I get too excited, just tie me down. So the issue in Thessalonica was that um, it seems that there was a, a great deal of fanaticism about um, the timing of Jesus' death. And some were confused because they'd seen people in the church and relatives die and Jesus had not yet come back. So they were worried that somehow their friends and relatives in the church were, were going to miss out on the return of Jesus because they believed uh, as we believe, that at the coming of Jesus, the dead would be raised. And so they were worried that those who died already had missed out on being raised back to life, right? So there was, ner there was nervousness, there was anxiety. And Paul speaks straight into this, verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. Um... In other words, believers who've already died will be the first to be raised to life when Jesus returns. So Paul just goes straight for it, doesn't he? You're, um, the people who've died in Christ, who are Christians, will be the first to be raised to life when Jesus comes again. Boom, straight there. Tackles it head on. Why does Paul use the language of um, falling asleep? Well, Jehovah's Witnesses wrongly interpret this literally. And if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness at any point, you may get into a conversation about the state of those who've died. They believe that um, people, uh, believers, go to be with, with, with the Lord, but they're in a sleeping state. They're not conscious. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. But that's not what Paul means at all. Paul means that sleep is a temporary state. So you go to bed, you go to sleep, I hope, and you wake up. When you go to bed and you go to sleep, you don't, you don't go to sleep with the thought that, um, well, maybe you do, but... Uh, <laughs> hang on, let's get the shovel. <laughs> Dig myself a hole. Normally, you would expect to wake up. Okay? I'm 
digging myself a pastoral hole here and disappearing largely down into it. It's a temporary state, sleep, isn't it? All right? Paul uses this metaphor of sleeping to show that Christians who've died are in a temporary state. One day they will be raised with a new resurrection body. When a Christian dies, they leave behind their physical body and their soul goes to be with Jesus. So Paul says in Philippians 1, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But look at his language. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Right? In other words, Paul hasn't finished ministering to the Philippians. So he has to stay in this mortal body for the time being. But one day he will go to be with the Lord. He'll leave behind this physical body and his soul will go to be with Jesus. That's what he means. So the soul separates from the body when a Christian dies and goes to be with Jesus. And when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise first before those still living on the earth. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay? So if you've got... um, I've lost both my parents um, in the last few years. And uh, this passage just, well, it's it's just such a hope. Right? Because I know that my parents are with Christ. Their souls are consciously alive in the presence of Jesus. Wow! They're in a far better place than I am. I miss them, but I know that they're with Christ. That's real hope, isn't it? And the souls of those Christians who've already died will receive new resurrection bodies one day. Paul says this, we're jumping around, sorry folks, I'm doing a bit of systematic theology here, because if you know Paul, you have to go to various passages to see it all link up together. So 1 Corinthians 15, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown perishable, that means subject to decay, is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. So those resurrection bodies will be imperishable. They will not grow old or get sick or decay. It's good news, isn't it? They will be imperishable. They will be immortal. So they will no longer be subject to death. These bodies that we get when when we are resurrected from the dead will be able to live with Jesus in the glory of heaven. You could not be in the presence of Jesus in heaven in this mortal body. You wouldn't survive you wouldn't survive. But in a new, glorified, resurrected body, you'll be able to live with Jesus for eternity. What about those Christians still living on the earth when Jesus returns? That could be us, couldn't it? Yeah? Could be you and me? Who knows? Paul tells us, verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Um, the verb caught up means to be suddenly snatched away. The term in Latin is raptus, from which we get the term rapture. Um, so sudden will this be that Paul likens it to happening in the blink of an eye. Again, 1 Corinthians 15. You will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. This is 
those who are still alive when Jesus comes. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. So those who are still alive on the earth will be caught up, snatched up in the air. Christ will come down from heaven and meet us in the air, the interspace between earth and heaven. And we will receive instantaneously new glorified resurrected bodies that won't be subject to sickness, death or decay. Whoa, that's good news, isn't it? (laughs) And we will carry on our journey into heaven. That's what the rapture means. It's a snatching away to meet the Lord in the air. So, folks, if, you've, if you're a Christian and you've chosen to follow Jesus and he's Lord of your life, this is the future for you. It's kind of good news, isn't it? <laughs> when you signed on the line as a Christian, it wasn't for this life, it's for eternity. It's great. It's good news. It's hope-filled, isn't it? We're only on a journey through this life to all, to what, all that's coming. The Thessalonian Christians needed to hold on to these reality because they were suffering persecution. They were a minority group. Remember Thessalonica, full of Roman, Greek, um, Egyptian gods. And they were persecuted. The Christians there were, were persecuted. They were, they were subject to being um, Um, to unemployment through their jobs. They were subject to being removed from their families. They were physically persecuted in their culture. And mainly because they declared that Jesus, not Caesar, was Lord. You see, Thessalonica was a Roman centre of power. It was a Roman provincial town. And everywhere you would have Caesar is Lord. But Jesus, sorry, Christians were going around saying Jesus is Lord. Well, that's an act of um, treason. Because... You know, the Romans believed that Caesar was Lord and God. So they were subject to persecution. And they needed, as a minority group, to know that the future was filled with hope and that God had a plan. I'm more and more associating with Thessalonica these days. In our 21st century Western culture, um, it feels more and more like we're a minority group. Anybody? Anybody else? Yeah? yeah. yeah? Feel, you know... We have strange values compared with the culture, don't we? Really odd. The Bible is an odd book when you hold it up to the culture because it says things that the culture doesn't like, like there will be a final judgment, that there is a heaven and a hell, that evil exists and it's real and there are demons and stuff in the world and it's nasty. The world doesn't want to hear this stuff. It's so swept up and caught up in materialism and consumerism and what you can see, feel and touch in the here and now. And yet people are hungry for meaning and purpose and spirituality. And we have the answer. As Christians, we have the answer. We live in a very strange time. And Christians have never been more of a minority group in this nation than we are now. And there's a danger in that. Because whenever, whenever um, Christians are in the minority, there tends to be two approaches historically. Christians can hunker down, pull up the drawbridge and say, right, we're cutting ourselves off from the surrounding culture. Right, that's one approach. Like, we're not going to do anything that we deem to be make us unclean and we'll just kind of live in our own little ghetto, 
cut ourselves off from the world. That's one approach. I don't think it's healthy because Jesus called us to be salt and light. And salt has to mix with the food. Light has to bring transformation in the darkness. So I think those metaphors in themselves tell us that withdrawing and pulling up the drawbridge is not an option. We have to get stuck in. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. But also, we don't want to accommodate to the culture. You know, if we're a minority group, the temptation is make yourself more popular, more palatable, right? So just flex a bit on some of the tough teaching, you know? Don't go so hard on judgment or on the reality of hell. You know, give a bit on sexual ethics, you know? Because we might make ourselves a little bit more palatable and popular if we just give a little bit of ground. And before you know it, you've got a church that is just like the culture and has no evangelistic edge and can't be light because it's just become dark like the surrounding culture. We're called to be light. We're called to stand out as a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We're called to live distinctive lives different from the culture. And that will bring hostility. Not everybody's going to like my views on sexual ethics or the final judgment. That's okay. That's all right. I'm standing on the word. So there is a temptation. And you can see elements of the Christian church capitulating to the culture. For the sake of wanting to be popular and, and kind of increase numbers, it doesn't work. It's been shown it doesn't work. Historically, the li liberalism just leads to a watered-down gospel that loses its potency and its edge. And it can't, a liberal, woolly gospel that blends in with society has no power to change anybody. Simples. So we need to be willing to take up our cross and follow, right? Following Jesus is drastic. It's, it's countercultural. It requires commitment and a willingness to go against the grain of popular culture. That's why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, they must take up their cross and follow. You know, you're not signing on to a... That Jesus is not a therapeutic counsellor to make your life more self-actualized, okay? He's not there to make you feel better about yourself and to... And, and there's a kind of counsel a guru figure to kind of help you to be the best person that you can be. <laughs> Jesus said, anyone comes after me, they will take up their cross and follow. He is Lord. Take up your cross and follow. By the way, a byproduct of that is we will have life in all its fullness. Right? But he's not into self-actualization and self-fulfillment like the culture. Um, so, we need to keep our eyes focused on the return of Jesus because that's our hope. That will keep us enduring and persevering in a hostile culture, right? So here we go. Let's get into the, the meat. A hope that endures. Paul provides reassurance to the Thessalonians in verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus. Now, Wrath is God's righteous judgment on sin, which throughout Scripture is linked to the day of the Lord. So here we have Isaiah 13, verse 9. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. In other words, there is a day coming when God will pour out his righteous judgment on the earth. 
um, that's what's coming. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is reassuring the Thessalonian Christians that they will be saved from this day of wrath. Right? How, you might ask? Well, Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture. When you look at the pictures Paul uses of the thief in the night, you will see that he derives that picture from Matthew 24, from the words of Jesus himself. Now, so that you can see that I'm not making this stuff up, all right, I'm going to show you how Paul uses the teaching of Jesus about God's coming wrath and about the, um, the rapture in his own teaching. Okay, is that all right? Yeah. All right, so first of all, let's look at what Jesus says about the final days and about the tribulation. No one knows about that day or hour. This is Matthew 24, 36. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And then you look across at 1 Thessalonians 5. Look at the, look at the language. Now, brothers, about times and dates... We do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, days of Noah, wasn't it? Destruction will come on earth, come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So Paul is drawing on the teaching of Jesus. Notice the similarity. And Paul, Jesus likens the day of the Lord to being like the destructive flood at the time of Noah that swept people away. Notice that the picture of the thief in the night emphasizes the sudden and unexpected nature of the return of Jesus. He will come at a time when people least expect him, like a thief in the night. People will be caught unprepared for his coming. Just like in the days of Noah, there were people who were caught unaware and unexpected about the flood. Didn't expect it to happen, didn't, didn't listen to it was going to happen. And Jesus himself links, in Matthew 24, this time of the day of the Lord to the tribulation, to a great distress of God's wrath which will be poured out on the earth. Here it is. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So Jesus is talking about the great tribulation which accompanies the return of Jesus Christ and the what he's wanting to say is that believers will be raptured away from the earth and the, the great tribulation will come on the earth, but believers are going to be snatched away. Isn't that wonderful? They're going to be saved from this time of tribulation. Now, if you want more evidence for this, I'll give it to you right now. So I've done my homework on all this. 
So if you look at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and the end of, one, of verse 18 and the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 1 and the end of 1 Thessalonians 5.11, there's an inclusio, which means that it's bookended. All right? You're supposed to read the unit as one unit. So look at this. Brothers, 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Now brothers, 1 Thessalonians 5.1. In other words, they are two sections, but Paul wants us to see that they're the same teaching. And then you've got, at the end of chapter 4, therefore encourage uh, each other with these words. And at the end of 5, therefore encourage one another. Do you see it? Paul is wanting us to see that the whole section is to be read and understood and interpreted as one unit. So he's not talking about a second coming in 5. He's talking about the same event in, in one chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4. So we're to read it as one unit. So... Our salvation from God's wrath on the day of the Lord in chapter 5, verse 9, is linked to our being caught up with Jesus in the air in verse 17. He's just taught them in chapter 4 that Christians will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord. And then he teaches them that they will be saved um, from God's wrath. And that's because they've been taken away. And this links, of course, to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 about one person being taken away to safety while another person is left behind on the earth. In other words, before the tribulation of God's judgment, believers will be taken away to safety. Isn't that wonderful? Um, I know that other people interpret this differently to me, but... Trust me, I've done a lot of work on this, and this, to me, makes the most sense of the text. I, you know, I've, I've read all of the Matthew 24 and analysed them. This is the only system that works, as far as I'm concerned. I'm happy to have a discussion with people, but it, it's true. I, I'm convinced it's true. And it, it's just great news. I'm almost embarrassed, because it, it's, it's almost too good news. But then why should we be embarrassed about the gospel? <laughs> uh, Paul sums this up in verse 10. He died for us so that whatever, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. In other words, he's saying to Christians, it doesn't matter whether you're still alive when Jesus returns or asleep, dead, you will be raised to new life. So verse 11. Therefore, Encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Whew. That's good news, isn't it? Folks, we should be encouraging one another with this stuff. There is a tribulation coming on the earth. There is a day of, of the Lord. God's judgment is coming on the earth. But, folks, we're going to be saved by Jesus on that day. We are going to be caught up with him in the air. Is anybody else excited this morning? Thank you. Hallelujah. <laughs> Don't you want others to know this stuff? Don't you want others to come to Christ and have this excitement and hope that you do? Yeah. So living in the light of the return of Jesus. This is where I get practical. All right? I've given you a lot of theology. I want to get practical with you. Is that all right? Yeah. Good. So how should we live today? Well, Paul tells us in verses 4 and 5. This is not a theory that we go, oh yes, I'm, I'm into a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial rapture. 
It's not what Paul would want us to do with this. I happen to believe that uh, we will be raptured before the tribulation. You can use long words around that. All right, but that's not the point that Paul would have us take away. The point that he would have us take away is live every day in the, in the expectation that Jesus is returning. Live a holy life. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. All right? If you're in the dark about spiritual realities, the Lord's coming will be like a thief in the night. It will be sudden and unexpected. So I'm going to say it boldly from the front. Are you ready for the coming of Jesus? Have you given your life to him? Are you a, children, are you a child of the light? Have you come to Christ and said, Lord, I need forgiveness? I don't want to be standing before you when you return and not a Christian. Because I want to be with you forever. I want to meet you in the air when you come. I want to be with you forever. That's what I want. So if that's you today, if you're not sure whether you've given your life to Christ, come and pray with me. And I'd love it if you were to come to me and say, now is the moment. I want to be ready for the return of Jesus. I want to give my life to him. I want to become a Christian. I want to know for certain that I'll live forever with Jesus. You can do that right here today. There's a number of you. I, I just, in my spirit, I hadn't put that in the notes. All right? I just sensed in my spirit that this was a word of challenge for a number of you sat here this morning. This is the moment. This is the moment for you to come to Christ. So come and talk to me. Come and, or find a Christian that you trust, because you may not know me from Adam. <laughs> find a Christian you trust and pray with them and just pray a prayer asking Jesus to come in and forgive you and uh, deal with you. I like this. Um, Ernest Best in his commentary says this, only the unprepared are surprised by the unexpected. I like that. Only the, un- only the unprepared are surprised by the unexpected. But we're, as Christians, we're not in the dark about spiritual realities. It is not as if when Jesus comes back suddenly that we're going to go, oh, no one told me about that. Oh, if only I'd known, you know, I'd have, I'd have prepared. You know, I'd have been praying, um, but I haven't prayed for a month. <laughs> you know, you've, folks, you've been told Jesus is coming, and it will, be a, a, it will be sudden and unexpected, and he's coming for his own, for his church, and he's coming on a day of judgment too. So you've heard it here. And Paul lays out the practical implications, verse 6. Let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. In other words, don't go through life in the dark spiritually about what's coming. Be alert, be awake, be self-controlled. Live the values of the kingdom of Jesus in the here and now, as if today is the day when Jesus suddenly comes, right? Don't sleepwalk through life wondering, I suppose I ought to read my Bible at some point, you know, or... Maybe I should get my life together. Folks, every day we should be living alert and self-controlled lives as Christians. Any day could be the return of Jesus. We should be sober and clear-headed. Drunkenness and sleep are pictures of being in the dark. Verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Stay sober. Be alert. Live disciplined, holy lives. 
Um, Paul uses the metaphor of um, dressing in armour in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. We're in a battle. We are soldiers of Christ, right? You know that. Every day you will face temptation. You will face discouragement. Satan is looking to pick you off. Put on the, put on the armour. Put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Every day. Look at the promises of God and have faith in them. Look at the hope that you've got to come in Christ of resurrection life in a new heaven and a new earth. Put that on as your helmet. Because that'll keep you going on the grey days. That'll keep you going when you're anxious about something coming up next week. This hope is eternal, and God wants you to have hope in your heart today. I don't know what you're facing today. Some of you have got um, operations coming up. Some of you are worried about your families. Some of you have got really difficult circumstances that you're facing. The best thing you can do is to put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus. He will deliver you. Like a soldier, put on the armour. Keep arming yourself every day. Living in the light of Christ's return doesn't mean some mystical experience or retreat from daily experience. You remember in chapter 4, there were some Christians who were going, right, I'm giving up my daily job because I want to give all my time to fasting and prayer in the light of the Lord's return. So I'm going to not work. And Paul says, no, that's wrong. You should live quiet lives, working with your hands to win the respect of outsiders. Do you think outsiders, people who are not in the church, people who are not Christians, are going to be um, drawn and attracted to fanatical people who are obsessed with the second coming and who kind of withdraw from society? Do you think that's attractive? That sounds like a cult to me, right? There have been enough of those, haven't there, where people hunker down in a kind of cult and they all die together because the, the person leading the cult told them that either they're the Messiah or the Messiah is coming imminently. We've seen this before. That sort of Christianity is not Christianity. Christianity is about living holy lives in the light of Christ's return in our daily walk with Christ. So on the school run, raising the family, serving the community voluntarily, doing our jobs that are paid or unpaid to the best of our ability, working diligently, conscientiously for the audience of one, right? There's only one person that matters ultimately, and that will be Christ, because we'll have to stand before him. I don't know about you, but I want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been trustworthy with the gifts, the talents I gave to you. You've invested them. You've worked hard. Um, you know, whether the boss is looking over your shoulder or not, there is an audience of one who is always looking over your shoulder. And we want to serve him and be ready for him, don't we? So live lives that will win the respect of outsiders is what Paul's saying. A life that's holy, a life that's distinctive from the culture around, a life that's centered on Jesus. I love the fact, Steve, we sung Jesus Be the Center, because that's what this is about, isn't it? You know, be the wind in these sails, be the fire in my heart, be the reason that I live, Jesus. You know, the reason that we go to work is to make Jesus known through the way that we work. The way that we raise our families lets others know, including our own families, that we love and know Jesus and that he's the centre. We want to win the respect of people by living 
lives that are centered on the return of Christ. Because Jesus will hold us accountable for how we've lived, whether we've trusted him, served him, loved him every day. And we want to stand before him and meet him, not with guilt and shame, but with a sense of, yeah, I've done my best for you, Lord. I love you, Lord. And we'll be invited to be with him for eternity. I think this is all such wonderful news. And uh, God loves us so much that he promises to save us. He promises that we will be with him for eternity. Doesn't that love require of us commitment? Doesn't that love for us require of us to walk daily, alert, self-controlled, sober, clear-headed, holy lives where we look for the return of Christ? Where everything we do, we do for the audience of one. Because he's coming back. And it will be like a thief in the night. Will you and I be ready? Will we be children of the light, living in the day? That's what the Lord is saying to us this morning. Let's, let's just be quiet and pray. Lord, for some, this is a wake-up call. And I pray, Lord, that people would not go from this place this morning without doing business with you, without giving their hearts to you. So I pray, Lord, for any here this morning who feel your Holy Spirit convicting them and saying, this is the moment to commit to Jesus or to recommit to Jesus. Lord, don't let them go, Spirit of God, without them doing business with you. And Lord, for others of us who have got complacent spiritually, who are kind of wandering through life um, in the dark, perhaps, and a little bit complacent about you, Father, in this moment of quiet, let's take a moment to recommit ourselves to you, to be those soldiers of Christ, to be those watching for your return. So let's do that in the quietness. For some of us, it might mean repenting of habits, patterns of behavior, sin. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray that as we continue to worship you in song, that you would release your Holy Spirit among us. And that, Lord, it would be great, Lord, if there were prophetic words, pictures, scriptures for the building up, strengthening, encouraging of your people this morning. So I pray, Lord, that you'd release spiritual gifts among your people, even now, Lord. I pray, Lord, that there might be a tongue with interpretation. I pray, Father, that there would be prophecy. Lord, that your church would be built up, strengthened, and encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen.